patrons heard this episode first. If you'd like to join our Patreon, visit the link in our show notes or go to patreon.com slash the murder diaries pod. Another fun perk patrons get is a shout out in an episode. Speaking of, thanks so much, Fidelity and Louise. Welcome back to another episode of The Murder Diaries. Picture this. You just graduated from high school, and you're fortunate enough to be able to go on a graduation trip to Aruba with more than 100 of your classmates and friends. There are seven adult chaperones. It's likely the first big trip without your parents and your first taste of the kind of freedom where you can make your own decisions about what you want to do with your day from start to finish. You graduated high school with honors, and you're already on track to begin your pre-med path at university in the fall. You're aware, however, that this is one of the last big trips you'll take before a long journey of education and nights staying up late studying. You certainly don't want to miss out on any of the fun because you know this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip. What was supposed to be a joyful last hurrah like that ended in tragedy for the young woman we're going to tell you about in this episode. Her name led news programs for months after her mysterious disappearance. Nearly 20 years later, the familiar senior portrait of the beautiful and intelligent young woman from Alabama periodically shows up in articles and news programs. That's because her disappearance is still a mystery. She has yet to be found. Her name? Natalie Holloway. This is her story. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Natalie Ann Holloway was born October 21st, 1986, in Clinton, Mississippi. Her parents, Dave and Beth Holloway, divorced in 1993 when Natalie was about seven years old. Natalie and her younger brother, Matthew, lived primarily with their mom, Beth. In 2000, seven years after divorcing Natalie's father, Beth Holloway remarried George Twitty, a successful Alabama businessman known as Jug. Beth moved Natalie and her brother from Clinton, Mississippi, to the upscale suburb of Mountain Brook, Alabama. Mountain Brook is located just outside of Birmingham. Natalie was in eighth grade at the time, and she sort of fell into a good group of girlfriends. According to a 2010 article by Glamour, two of those girlfriends said they all called each other nicknames. Natalie's was Hootie, or Hootie, as she liked to say in a high-pitched voice on the phone. Beth confirms Natalie's beloved nickname in this clip from an interview with Nightline on ABC News. They called her Hootie. (laughs) There's Hootie. So Hootie Who Holloway. Who's our special guest today? It's Hootie. Hootie Who Holloway. Hi, friend. Just, you know, sitting in the back, cruising over to my place. Natalie was a star student. She was a member of the Mountain Brook High School dance team, and she volunteered with the American Field Service, where she helped exchange students adapt to life in the U.S. She earned a full academic scholarship to the University of Alabama, where she planned to be pre-med with dreams of becoming a doctor. Natalie also attended church regularly. Her uncle Paul told the Associated Press just days after her disappearance that Natalie's naive. She hasn't dated a lot. She doesn't party a lot. Natalie's friends say that she had an obsession for The Wizard of Oz and a love for the Southern rock band Leonard Skinnerd. During finals week, when most students were studying, Natalie was calling her friends to hang out. Her grade point average was the top of her class, so unlike some of her friends, she didn't have to take finals. Natalie's friend Claire told Glamour that she was, quote, not a rule bender. 
When she got her first car, a little white Volvo, Claire begged Natalie to let her drive it. And Natalie obliged by letting Claire move it one spot over in the parking lot. Natalie did not take risks. Natalie's friend Mally told Glamour that they worked at Mally's mom's organic food store on the weekends. Mally's mom hired adults with autism at the store, and Natalie was their favorite coworker. She worked alongside them to shuck corn and shell peas together. Her friends said that Natalie and her mom, Beth, were very close. Beth was a speech pathologist who worked with children. Natalie's friends say that passion for helping people is something that they shared. Natalie's friends say that she never had a serious boyfriend. She had a crush on one guy, which they could tell by Natalie's shyness whenever she was around him. But they say she was waiting for a Southern gentleman. They reiterated what Natalie's uncle had said. Natalie was innocent. Adding to this innocence, Natalie had never traveled much aside from driving from Alabama to the Florida Panhandle. So a graduation trip to Aruba was a huge deal to her. Honestly, it was a huge deal to her friends too. They all had painted t-shirts that said Aruba. Natalie and her closest girlfriends graduated from Mountain Brook High School on Tuesday, May 24th, 2005. Two days later, on Thursday, May 26th, Natalie and more than 100 of her classmates and friends took two planes for a celebratory trip to Aruba. The plan was to be in Aruba for five days of fun in the Caribbean sun and then return on Monday, May 30th. Again, for Glamour, Natalie's friends said that the Aruba Holiday Inn where they stayed was nice. The girls were having a great time. They went snorkeling, and it was exactly what you'd expect out of a graduation trip. Friend Claire told NBC's Dateline that they were outside on the beach all day. Then they would take a nap, get dressed, go eat dinner, and then go to one of the bars. According to teacher and chaperone Bob, the chaperones met with the students every day to check in. The trip's organizer, Jody, said that the chaperones were not there to keep an eye on their every move. They were just there to support and make sure the kids were doing okay. Later on, the police commissioner who led the investigation in 2005 and 2006 said that the Mountain Brook students engaged in, quote, wild partying and a lot of drinking, lots of room switching every night, end quote. He said that the Holiday Inn told them they were not welcome back. Two of Natalie's classmates who were there confirmed reports stating that Natalie was drinking heavily and partaking in the fun while they were there. One of the popular bars for the younger crowd in Aranyastad, about 15 minutes from the Holiday Inn where Natalie was staying, was Carlos and Charlie's. That's where Natalie went on the last night of their trip. Witnesses who were at Carlos and Charlie's the night of Natalie's disappearance reported a large group singing Sweet Home Alabama on repeat. Some of Natalie's classmates report seeing her last around 1.30 a.m. on Monday, May 30th, the same day as their flight home. She left Carlos and Charlie's with 17-year-old Jorn Vandersloot. Jorn was a Dutch honors student at the National School of Aruba. Later, reports would reveal that he was a frequent gambler at the Holiday Inn Casino where Natalie and her fellow graduates were staying. Two of Jorn's friends were also in the car. Suriname brothers, 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo and 18-year-old Satish Kalpo. Unfortunately, we may never know what happened during that car ride from Carlos and Charlie's. We don't know where they went, what happened, or why. All we know is that Natalie never showed up at the airport for her return flight home. True to character, Natalie had everything ready and organized in her hotel room already for the flight home. Her passport, cell phone, and bags packed ready to go were found later in her room. But as we know, she never returned to her room. Natalie's Aunt Maria says Natalie being late was a tip-off, indicating that Natalie was always on time. 
As the more than 100 graduates boarded their planes home, news of Natalie's disappearance had already made its way to her parents, Beth Twitty and Dave Holloway, who were already on their way to Aruba. Natalie's hotel roommate grew concerned after Natalie never made it back to the room. She and a few others told the Aruban police stationed at the hotel that their friend did not come home last night. Police took notes on a clipboard. As for Natalie's mom, Beth, she received a phone call from a number she didn't recognize early in the morning of May 30th, which was Memorial Day here in the U.S. Beth told Dateline, quote, I knew instantly when I received that call that just from Natalie's history and character and just her record, I knew instantly that she'd either been kidnapped or murdered. There was no hesitation. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. End quote. She and Natalie's stepfather, along with close friends and family, flew by private jet to Aruba immediately. As any desperate mother would, Beth did her own investigating. Within four hours of landing, she had gotten Jorn Vandersloot's address, given the address to Aruban police, and she was standing outside his home. Back home in Mountain Brook, about eight students from the trip gathered in Natalie's friend's living room. Beth called the group, and they put her on speakerphone. She said, kids, I need more details. Anyone who had seen Jorn Vandersloot in Aruba shouted whatever information they had. Over the phone, they could hear Beth outside Jorn's house, pleading to talk with him face to face. The group in Claire's living room, holding on to hope, screamed over the phone, Natalie's in the house. Beth said that she had gotten Jorn's name from the night manager at the Holiday Inn, who allegedly recognized him without hesitation on a videotape. Beth and her husband, along with two police officers, had gone to Jorn's home to look for Natalie. Jorn denied knowing Natalie, but then finally gave a story that Deepak, again, one of the brothers that had been in the car with Natalie, supported. Deepak was also at Jorn's house as Beth and the police stood outside. Jorn's initial story was this. He told police that they drove Natalie to the California lighthouse area of Arashi Beach because she wanted to see sharks. They later dropped her off at the Holiday Inn around 2 a.m. Jorn said that Natalie fell down as she got out of the car but refused his help. He said that as he was driving away, a dark man in a black shirt, similar to what the security guards were wearing, came up to Natalie. Again, that was Jorn's first story of the night's events. He would go on to change it so many times that we'll likely never really know the whole truth. One of the first sources investigators checked was security footage from the Holiday Inn. Reports say nighttime surveillance footage of the hotel lobby did not show any sign of Natalie on the night of her disappearance. Beth, however, questioned whether the cameras were even working that night. The police commissioner in charge of Natalie's case clarified that Natalie didn't have to go through the lobby to get to her room. With that in mind, Beth said in an interview for Dateline that they watched hours of camera footage from outside the entrance of the hotel where Yorn would have dropped Natalie off. But there was never any footage found of that happening. With that, Beth was convinced Yorn made up the story. Let's pause to explain what Aruba's like if you've never been. It's a small island just north of the coast of Venezuela. It's so small that it would only take about 45 minutes to drive the entire length of the island. Blink and you'd think you're at a beach in Florida with Americanized hotels, such as the Holiday Inn where Natalie was staying and a Marriott. Aruba is a constituent country in the Kingdom of the Netherlands. As such, authorities in both Aruba and the Netherlands actively took part in the investigation of Natalie's disappearance. Search and rescue efforts for Natalie started immediately. 50 Dutch Marines were called in to do an extensive search of the Aruban shoreline. Volunteers from Aruba and the U.S. also joined the search. The Aruban government gave thousands of civil servants a day off to help with the rescue efforts. 
three Dutch F-16s were specially fitted with infrared image devices to scan the island for freshly dug graves. Despite all these efforts and the government spending more than $3 million, which is 40% of the Aruban police's budget, Natalie was never found. During the initial search, Beth was given housing at the Holiday Inn and ended up in the same room as Natalie. Beth said in an interview that it was too much for her to stay in the same room that her daughter had, so she switched to the nearby Wyndham Hotel, where she stayed in the presidential suite. The massive search for physical evidence led to multiple false leads. One of those included what was initially thought to be a blood sample from the car. Further testing determined it was not blood. Although they didn't know it yet, similar false leads would haunt Natalie's family for years to come. Over the course of the next three years, police arrested 10 different people in Natalie's case, but no one was ever charged, mainly due to lack of evidence. The first of these was on June 5th, 2005, which was the arrests of two former security guards from the nearby Allegra Hotel, Nick and Abraham. The Allegra Hotel was closed for renovation at the time of Natalie's trip. Police arrested them on suspicion of murder and kidnapping. It's unclear exactly why they were arrested, but news outlets reported that Jorn and the Calpo brothers may have given statements that led to their arrests. Other reports indicated that the two former security guards were known for cruising around hotels to pick up women, with police getting involved in at least one of those prior incidents. The two former guards were released over a week later without any formal charges. On June 9, 2005, police arrested Jorn Vandersloot and the two Calpo brothers on suspicion of kidnapping and murdering Natalie. In Aruba, the law allows investigators to arrest someone based on serious suspicion. Authorities must then increasingly meet an evidential burden in order to continue holding a suspect in custody. The police commissioner in charge said the investigation focused on Jorn and the Calpo brothers from the very beginning. He said their investigation included close observation of surveillance, telephone wiretaps, and email monitoring. While the three suspects were in custody, they changed their stories again. All three stated that Jorn and Natalie were dropped off at the Marriott Hotel Beach near the Fisherman Huts. Jorn said he did not hurt Natalie, but left her on the beach. The story changed a third time during the interrogation, this time Jorn saying that he was dropped off at home and the Calpo brothers drove off with Natalie. The police commissioner discounted this third story, stating, This story came when Jorn saw the other guys, the Calpos, were kind of finger-pointing in his direction, and he wanted to screw them also by saying he was dropped off. But that story doesn't check out at all. He just wanted to screw Deepak. They had great arguments about this in front of the judge because their stories didn't match. We believe the second story, that they were dropped off by the Marriott. Authorities released the Calpo brothers after nearly a month on Monday, July 4th. Jorn remained in custody for 60 more days until he was released due to lack of evidence. According to Beth's husband at the time, a local gardener came forward with information. He claimed to have seen Jorn trying to hide his face as he drove into the Aruba Racquet Club near the Marriott Hotel Beach with the Calpo brothers in the early morning hours of May 30th, the day of Natalie's disappearance. Another person, known as the Jogger, claimed to have seen men burying a blonde-haired woman in a landfill in the afternoon of May 30th. Police had already searched this landfill days after Natalie disappeared. After the Jogger's story, the FBI used cadaver dogs to search the landfill three more times, but nothing was found. On August 26th, police rearrested the Calpo brothers as well as a new sixth suspect, 21-year-old Freddie. This guy was accused of taking photographs of an underaged girl and having inappropriate physical contact with that same girl. 
This incident allegedly happened before Natalie's disappearance, and the police commissioner later said that these arrests were unsuccessful attempts to pressure the Calpo brothers into confessing. Meanwhile, Natalie's family held on to hope that she was still alive somewhere else, and they did everything they could to locate her. Two months after Natalie's disappearance in late July, Beth announced that the reward for information leading to her daughter's return had been raised from 200000 to $1 million. Beth told reporters that friends had chipped in to increase the reward amount. Natalie's stepfather, Jug, said that there were rumors that Natalie might be in Venezuela or another country. Meanwhile, forensic teams in the U.S. and Holland tested blonde hair that was found on a piece of duct tape in Aruba in July to see if it matched Natalie's DNA. But the samples were not a match. In January 2006, eight months after her disappearance, the FBI and Aruban authorities interviewed and re-interviewed some of Natalie's friends and classmates in Alabama. Police continued searching for Natalie's body in sand dunes on the northwest coast of Aruba, as well as areas close to the Marriott Beach. All of these searches came up empty. The police commissioner who initially led the case did an interview with CBS shortly after leaving the case. He said he believed that Natalie died from alcohol or drug poisoning and that someone later hid her body. He indicated that there was evidence that Natalie had possession, not necessarily use, of illicit drugs. Natalie's family disputes this story and they denied she ever even touched drugs. This is when Yorn's story changes again. A few months after his release, Jorn Bandersloot gave several interviews. The most memorable was an interview with Fox News over three nights in March 2006, which was about 10 months after Natalie's disappearance. Jorn changed his story for the fourth time. In this new version, he claims that Natalie wanted to have sex with him, but he did not want to because he didn't have a condom. He said that Natalie wanted them to stay on the beach, but that he had to go to school in the morning. Joran then says that Satish Kalpo picked him up around 3 a.m. and they left Natalie sitting on the beach. Satish's attorney discounted this story, stating that he had gone to sleep and never returned to drive Joran home. Joran follows his side of things up, stating that he was somewhat ashamed to have left a young woman alone on a beach and said he lied at first because he was convinced that Natalie would turn up. A month after Joran's interviews aired, Aruban authorities arrested a seventh suspect, Jeffrey. They arrested him on suspicion of criminal offenses related to dealing narcotics, which the prosecutor says might have been involved with Natalie's disappearance. Jeffrey was released a few days later. In May 2006, the son of former Aruban politician Guido was arrested on suspicion of helping abduct and kill Natalie. Authorities questioned him for about a week, and then he was released. In late 2006, Beth and Natalie's father, Dave, filed a wrongful death suit against the Calpo brothers in L.A. Superior Court. This suit claimed that Deepak and Satish, quote, intentionally, negligently, and wantonly caused deadly injuries to their daughter. This immediately followed a California suit by the Calpo brothers against the famous TV host, Dr. Phil. The brothers alleged that a private investigator secretly recorded a conversation with Deepak and aired it on the Dr. Phil show. The lawsuit claimed that the show altered portions of the recording to create false incriminating statements, making it look like the brothers engaged in criminal activity against Natalie. An attorney representing Dr. Phil, the investigator, and CBS all denied that the conversation was secretly recorded. A statement by the show's attorney said that the defendant stood by the integrity of the Dr. Phil show and its editing process. Natalie's parents saw a jury trial and unspecified damages in their wrongful death suit against the Calpo brothers. 
Beth said in a statement, quote, there's no doubt in my mind that Deepak and Satish played a role in my daughter's death and should be held accountable. A year later, a judge dismissed the suit over a lack of jurisdiction since the case had no connection with California and the courts did not have jurisdiction over the Calpo brothers. In November 2007, more than two years after Natalie's disappearance, Joran Vandersloot and the Calpo brothers were arrested again on suspicion of being involved with manslaughter and causing bodily harm that resulted in Natalie's death. All three were eventually released again due to lack of evidence. Shortly after the releases, the prosecutor finally declared the case closed and that no charges would be filed due to lack of evidence. Deepak Kalpo's attorney stated in part that unless they find a body, there's no way in hell they could be arrested anymore. The case wasn't closed for long. About a month after the prosecutor declared the case closed, a Reuben authorities cracked it open after a Dutch crime reporter claimed to have solved the case. This all stems from another story told by Jorn Vandersloot. In February 2008, a Dutch reporter named Peter released a special television program. In this program, they aired footage that had been recorded from hidden cameras and microphones inside of a car of a Dutch businessman and ex-convict who had gained Joran's trust. You can see Joran smoking weed and stating that he was with Natalie when she began convulsing, shaking, and became unresponsive. Joran said he tried to revive her but was unsuccessful. He said that he then called a friend who told Joran to go home and that he would come and dispose of the body. That friend who Joran claims to have helped that night discounted his story. He says that he was at school in the Netherlands at that time. Prosecutors tried to arrest Joran again on account of this story, but an appeals court said the taped statements were inconsistent with evidence in the case. Joran met with authorities and denied his statements from the tapes, claiming he was under the influence of marijuana. He stood by his previous story that he left Natalie alone on the beach. You won't believe this, but Joran Vandersloot's story changed again in November 2008. Fox News aired another interview in which Joran said that he allegedly sold Natalie into sexual slavery. He claimed that he was paid money when Natalie was taken and was later paid to keep quiet. The Fox News report also aired audio provided by Yorn of his father revealing knowledge of his son's apparent involvement in human trafficking. The audio was later disputed. A Dutch newspaper reported that the father's voice was actually Yorn trying to speak in a lower tone. Yorn eventually retracted the statements made in that interview. As we mentioned earlier, Vandersloot's story changed many times over the course of the next five years. Each time his story changed, Investigators would look into his new claims, but wouldn't find anything. At one point in 2010, Vandersloot claimed to have left Natalie's body in a marsh in Aruba. New prosecutors said the locations, names, and times he gave just didn't make sense. In 2010, Natalie's mom, Beth, came into contact with Yorn again. Her lawyer received an offer from Yorn requesting an advance of $25,000 against a total of $250,000 in exchange for the location of Natalie's body and the true story of her death. Beth and her lawyer notified the FBI and wired $15,000 to Yorn's account. The information Yorn gave was again proven to be false. He told Natalie's family that her body was in a house in Aruba, but the house he was talking about had not even been built yet when she disappeared. Yorn was then charged with extortion and wire fraud. That same year in 2010, five years to the day since Natalie's disappearance, 21-year-old business student Stephanie Flores Ramirez vanished in Lima, Peru. The lead suspect in the case was a familiar name, Yorin Vandersloot. 
Police found Stephanie dead three days later in a hotel room booked by Yorin. Not long after, authorities found Yorin in Chile and arrested him on a murder charge. Police in Peru say Yorin confessed to killing Stephanie. He says he killed her after he lost his temper because she took his laptop without permission and found information linking him to Natalie. Yorin ended up admitting to the extortion plot against Natalie's parents, saying, quote, I wanted to get back at Natalie's family. Her parents have been making my life tough for five years. He also pled guilty to murdering Stephanie and is serving a 28-year prison sentence. Beth, now knowing exactly where to find Yorin, traveled to Peru to visit him with the Dutch documentary crew. This was right after the extortion incident. She walked away from that visit with a new mindset. She said he didn't provide any answers, but it allowed her to move on. She told Dr. Oz in 2017 that she didn't expect to feel empowered when she left Yorin in prison. She said she saw him as a pathetic person and didn't feel any hate. Dave, Natalie's father, said he might go to Peru one day to talk to Yorin, but he wants to give it time for prison to potentially change him. Six years after Natalie's disappearance and no new evidence, Natalie's dad, Dave, filed a petition with the Alabama courts to have Natalie declared legally dead. Beth intended to oppose the petition, but in 2012, seven years after Natalie's disappearance, a judge signed the order declaring her dead. It has now been nearly 18 years since Natalie's disappearance. Her mom, dad, and brother have never received closure. Each time a potential human bone is discovered, its DNA is tested to see if it's a match for Natalie, but each time the results come up short. Last year, in 2022, Beth returned to Aruba with television personality and journalist Nancy Grace, who criticized Aruba's initial investigation. Nancy said that Natalie should have been found within 24 hours given the size of the island. Natalie's family criticized the investigation from the very beginning as well. The Rubin investigation has been accused of alleged bribery, cover-ups, and corruption in its handling of Natalie's disappearance. During an interview with Nancy Grace on Inside Edition, Beth said she'd found some solace in her daughter's disappearance. Natalie was with God, and that her Heavenly Father wrapped His loving arms around her, and He cared for her through whatever ordeal she encountered that night. As for now, Natalie's mother has made it her mission to advocate for traveling safety. She founded the International Safe Travels Foundation. The nonprofit is designed to educate the public on traveling safely internationally. In 2010, the Natalie Holloway Resource Center opened at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment. It helps families of missing persons. Natalie was a straight A student with a bright future, but that future was dimmed in an instant. So we ask you to remember her name, repeat it. Just like Beth, we all need to advocate for traveling safely, whether it's internationally or down the street from your home. Life can change in a second. Little things like using the buddy system, sharing your location, carrying your cell phone with you at all times and making sure it's charged, being extra cautious in crowded touristy areas, and being aware of your surroundings might all be able to help. Never let a friend leave alone or with someone you don't know. Tell your friends, your kids, their friends. Remind everyone, you never know whose life you might save. As for Natalie, we can remember her by her 2005 senior yearbook quote. It's from the Leonard Skinner song, Free Bird, which is personally one of my favorites of all time. If I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? For I must be traveling on now. There's too many places I haven't seen. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at the Murder Diaries Pod. Until then, stay safe. Bye. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. 
Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.